All right, well, good morning. How are we all doing today? Good, good, awesome. My name is Nathan. I am um, extremely honored and excited to be here speaking to you today, continuing our series, That You May Believe in the Book of John. So if you will, open up your Bibles and turn on your iPhones and Androids, uh, whatever kind of phone you got, to John chapter 11, where we will be today. Now, normally I don't just jump in like this. I like to ease myself in and you guys into this message, but because we have communion today, as you can see, and we have some incredible extended time of worship after communion, so don't leave after communion. We have some incredible worship for you that's extended for y'all. And also because there are 50 verses in John, over 50 verses in John chapter 11, I really don't want to have to take a break for lunch and then come back after this, okay? So we're going to try to get through this. Uh, this narrative in John chapter 11 is absolutely incredible. It's a detailed account of Jesus going to Bethany because two sisters named Mary and Martha sent word that their brother Lazarus was ill. It's a story of Jesus going, having conversations with people, growing with people, and then also eventually raising a dead Lazarus, spoiler alert, from the dead. So there's your spoiler alert for the day, I warned you. Um, And so because of how much there is in this, I really don't want to miss anything. I know I probably will. So a little shout out on your bulletins. There's a QR code. That's a dive in. That's for me. If I miss anything in my imperfections, which I have a lot, then you get to scan that and then go uh, to the website afterwards. And we have a summary of the message as well as some questions and scripture for you to work through with your roommates, with your friends, family, spouses, whoever. Um, it's a resource that we want you guys to use to help grow your relationship with Christ. But also another way that I'm going to stay on track today is I'm going to have a running illustration. This is a dream come true for me. So if you've been wondering... What is behind me and why everyone was bringing out half of the Hope Kids illustrations today. Uh, the reason is because, does anybody know what this is? Flannel board, thank you. Travis, let's go. Yes, it is a flannel graph, flannel board. It was a flannel graph technically, so. I'll give you half the points. It's a flannel graph. These bad boys were used in every single traditional church, uh, like Presbyterians used them, Church of God Baptist back in the 90s and early 2000s. I wasn't born before the 90s, so if they were used before then, I'm sorry. Uh, 90s and 2000s. Uh, the Methodists are just now discovering this incredible piece of technology. Um, I don't know why I picked on them today. I think I just kind of eeny, meeny, miny, mowed it. Um, but so we're going to be using this to walk through the story. Also, I'm a children's pastor, so I love using stuff like this, and it helps me. So we're going to use this to keep track of who we are talking about and, and where they are um, in the story. But before I jump in, will you all please pray uh, with me and then also for me as I try to communicate as effectively as possible the words that God is speaking through John chapter 11. Let's pray. Dear Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for this time that we have to come together and worship you through so many different avenues, God. I pray for this time that you will um, just reveal yourself more and more to these people and to myself through this text, God. I pray that these people see more of you through this and, and less of me as I'm up here speaking, that it's not my words, but it's your words, God, and that you get all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. We thank you and we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So, We start in this story taking place right after John chapter 11. Uh, Pastor Mark preached on John chapter 10. Sorry, John chapter 10. He preached on John chapter 10 last week uh, where Jesus was comparing himself to being the good shepherd. His sixth I am statement, I am the good shepherd, saying that he is one with the Father. People getting really upset about that and picking, even picking up rocks, getting ready to kill him. And him and the disciples having to flee Judea in order to escape death. So we pick up right off of that. 
Now, because there are so many verses also, I'm going to be paraphrasing and also reading some scripture as well. So if I'm jumping around, just know I'm paraphrasing some of the verses. But in the first part of this story, we see, we see that Jesus, I get to, this is just a dream come true for me. We see that Jesus, he's so cute, and the disciples, look at that, receive word that a man named Lazarus, oh yeah, we're going, is sick. Lazarus is sick, and he has received word from Mary and Martha. Now, it's important to know that these are not just randos who are, are texting Jesus that, hey, my brother is sick, that these are people that Jesus loves dearly. The word used here is agape, which means this deep, intimate knowing of someone, that these people love Jesus. They are sending word to him, expecting him to come right away. And so we pick up and in fact, we see that Jesus reacts in a way that only Jesus would. In verse 4, we read, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That verse 4, I believe, sets up the entirety of this narrative. That verse 4 will then set the standard for what is about to take place and why everything is taking place. That this idea of the glory of God, yeah, I have, a, I have one for it. The glory of God is going to be a central theme in this passage. But it's not only a central theme in just John chapter 11. The glory of God is a central theme throughout the Bible. I know that because it's used in 328 verses in the Bible. This glory of God is important. So because it is so important, I want to make sure that we understand that word. Because I understand today that we have non-believers in the room who maybe have no idea what I'm even talking about when I say the glory of God. But then also as believers, we hear this word so much, I think, that oftentimes our definition and understanding of it becomes muddled in the different contexts that we see it in. And so what I want to do is I want to help us understand this idea of glory as it pertains to our God. In the Old Testament, the word glory means, it's translated to mean weight. It it grounds us in the grandness of who God is. We see God in all of his holiness and it grounds us, it provides this weight in our hearts and it creates this awe to him. In the New Testament Greek, it's translated to mean dignity, honor, praise, and worship. If we start digging even deeper, my, my first thought whenever I think of the glory of God. I go to the Psalms. David and the other psalmists, they write so much about the glory of God. Psalm 8 verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Psalm 19 1 says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. That the glory of God is something that we can see. It's something that we can see that points us to our God. Or, or, or Psalm 26, verse 8. Psalm 26, verse 8. Jeez, Nathan, you're reading a lot of psalms. It's scripture, okay? So just settle down. Oh, Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. It's not just something that we can see. It's also something that resides, that dwells somewhere. In the, in the Old Testament, it would have dwelt in the temple. The glory of God would have dwelt in the temple, and people would have gone there to see more of God and to have answers uh, for things in their life. New Testament, we know that the glory of God now dwells in us through Jesus Christ. And so as I was looking through scripture and as I was continuing to try to figure out what glory is and and the overarching definition of it, I came upon an incredible narrative in Exodus 33. This narrative is about Moses and the Israelites and Hope Kids, we call the Israelites God's family, God's chosen family, that Moses and God's chosen family have just asked God to continue his presence with them, and God has just granted this petition to continue his presence with them. And we see Moses ask a a question I think helps us understand this idea of glory glory of God really well in Exodus 33, verse 18, when Moses asks, 
please show me your glory. Please show me your glory. Now, Nathan, that doesn't really help me understand glory. He's asking about glory with glory in the word. But what Moses is really asking here is to see God as he is. He's saying, God, I want to see you as you are. God responds saying, in fact, you cannot look upon my face because I am too holy, too full of majesty. And if you looked and saw my face directly, you would die where you stand. But in fact, you can look at my back. Now, God is not saying, like, you can look at my back, right? Like, that'd be kind of weird, God, that you're asking me to look at your back. But what he's saying is that you can look at where I've been, what I've touched, what I've been working in and for, wherever I have been working in and for, there you can see me. There you can see me more. And so if we take what all the scholars say, if we take what the commentaries say, the definitions, the Greek, the Hebrew, we look at Psalms, we look at all this scripture, we look at the descriptions and definitions, we can come to see that this broad idea of glory as it pertains to God means God revealed. God revealed to us, to, through creation, through our situations in life, that God is going to reveal himself and it's going to point us to his holiness, to his majesty, and it's going to create this sense of awe in our life. Which makes what Jesus says here in verse 4 even more incredible because he is saying, this illness does not lead to death, it is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That God is going to be revealed and that Jesus is going to be revealed more through this situation. Man, this should hype us up, right? I'm taking sick Lazarus down for a sec. This should hype us up, right? Jesus is about to reveal himself. It's about to be this awesome display of wonder and glory. So what does he do next? Let's read in verse 6 and 7. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. Wait, didn't he just say he was about to you know, reveal himself and it was about to be this awesome thing? Why would God and Jesus wait in that moment? That we see in, in the coming discussion with the disciples, an emphasis on God's timing in, in Jesus' life, but also our life. We see an emphasis that Jesus here is, is saying, after, after the disciples, uh, he says, let's go to Judea. They say, wait, Jesus, you remember we were just about to be killed there, right? Like, you remember people were picking up rocks, we were about to die, right? That, as if Jesus needed reminding of that. And so what Jesus responds with is this mildly confusing statement about time, the hours of the day, and walking in the light, and walking during the day and not at night. What Jesus here is saying is that I know that this is not leading to my death or your death, but this is leading to an opportunity to reveal myself more. That we see that Jesus has confidence in his present circumstance because he knows the plan of his Father. He knows his Father's will for his life through a relationship with him, and because of that, it gives him confidence in the midst and in the face of death. And then we see, he tells the disciples, we have to go, Lazarus is asleep. When the disciples, I love it, if the disciples are this slow, then I have no worries of myself. Jesus loves me too, because the disciples say, well, if he's asleep, he's going to recover. Like, really, disciples? Seriously? Like, get with it. Come on, you know Jesus is not saying that he's actually just asleep. He wouldn't go to Judea if Lazarus was just asleep. So Jesus has to go, no, he's died, okay, guys, come on. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. That for some reason, this revealing of Jesus is going to cause belief in the people who are witnessing it. And, and I think 
I always wonder what the disciples are thinking when he says that. Do you think they feel guilty that Jesus just had to say that to him? Or do you think they're confused even more? We, we really only see one response from Thomas, who is called the twin. No, he's called the twin because he looks like Jesus. So this should be the last guy that wants to go back to Judea because people were wanting to kill Jesus. He looks like him. Put two and two together. He should not want to go. But we see this bold statement of faith when Thomas says, Let us go with him so that we may die with him. A great statement of faith, but also I don't think he understands what Jesus is saying, because Jesus just said, we're not dying here, but Thomas says, let's go die with him. He's not understanding, but still we see Thomas's confidence in the timing of God because Jesus is confident in it. He's saying, if Jesus isn't scared, I'm gonna, I'll go. If Jesus is going somewhere, I'm going to follow him. Wherever Jesus is, I understand that that's where I need to be. That Thomas has confidence because he, he knows Jesus deeply. He is willing to die for and with Jesus. When we know Jesus, when we have this knowing of him, we have this confidence that surpasses our greatest fears. When you know Jesus in your life, it, it provides this confidence in your life that no matter what, Jesus is there working in your situation. And so we then come to this next part of the narrative where the Jesus and the disciples get to Bethany. Actually, the glory of God's going to stay up here the entire time. I'm deciding that. And I'm taking the disciples off, even though they're probably still there during this part. We, we get to this point where Jesus leaves. They get to Bethany. And it says that Lazarus has been dead for four days. Once again, we see something interesting about four days. Underline that in your Bible today because four days is really important. Once again, John, the author here, is emphasizing something about God's timing. Four days is important because in this culture and what the Pharisees were teaching in this time was that after four days, the person was dead, dead. Nathan, it said Lazarus was dead. I know. They were teaching that someone, if someone died for three days, their spirit would remain by their side. Their spirit would remain by their side and wait for a miracle or a healer to come and heal them. That there was still a chance for them to be brought back from the dead. But on the fourth day, that person and their spirit left. Their spirit left, and therefore that person was truly dead. There was no hope for revival. And so it's important because way back at the beginning, Jesus waits two days. He waits two days so that Lazarus will have already been dead for four. He waits two days so that it's even more of an impossible situation, so that he can have even more glory of the uh, the glory of God revealed to everyone, that he can show even more so how powerful he is here on, on earth. So they get to Bethany. They meet Mary and Martha. Now, I'm putting the tomb up. We're not at the tomb, but I just want us to remember that Lazarus is dead, dead, right? And then we have Mary and Martha, and we have sad Mary and Martha for people in flow down. Sad Mary and Martha. Seth, you see it? Sad Mary and Martha, and Jesus waddles on over to them and sits right there. Perfect. He sits right there, and now he, he talks to them at two different points, but what we're going to talk about first is the thing that they say to him. Because even though he's having different conversations with him, they both say the exact same thing to him to start the conversation. Martha in verse 21 and Mary in verse 32, they both say, if you would have been here, you could have saved him. What a gut punch to Jesus, right? If you would have been here, you could have saved him. 
Three quick things about this. In this culture, it would have been unheard of for a woman to walk up to a man and show this type of doubt in a decision of a man. It would have been unheard of for a woman to go up to a man and question a decision that a man had made. But what this shows us is that they had such a strong relationship with Jesus that it went beyond the cultural status quo, went beyond the, the norm, that they were able to go to him because they knew him and they knew that he would not respond in rebuke or in shame, but that he would respond in comfort and explanation. The second is, I think Mary and Martha here get a bad rap for doubting Jesus. People are like, man, you shouldn't doubt Jesus. But I think we should make an important distinction between doubt and denial. Doubt means that you have questions, but that you're bringing it to Jesus. Denial means that you just don't even believe anymore, and it's done. And I'm done paying, I'm, I'm done, okay? But doubt is what they're showing here, which brings us to our third thing, because even though they're doubting Jesus, and even though, even though they know that he could have saved him, They're still bringing the situation, their pain, their suffering, and their grief to Jesus, not away from him. How many times in our life when we feel intense pain or intense suffering, a lot of times we know our God is a miracle worker. We we know that truth about him, but that in that pain, we our hearts become hardened to him because for some reason he didn't help my present situation in a way that I can tangibly see right now. And because of that, my heart becomes hardened and I turn away. But what Martha and Mary exemplify here, exemplify here is that even though they're feeling that intense pain, they bring that to Jesus and not away from him because they know that Jesus is going to provide them with some sort of comfort and explanation for the pain that they're going through, that Jesus is going to point them to the purpose in their pain. And so, we, we, even though they say the exact same thing to him, Jesus responds differently to Martha and Mary. Let's read about Martha's first. So I'm taking Mary off. I have to decide which one is Martha and Mary. Wendy's going to be. Can we give a round of applause real quick to Wendy? Because she made this this week. I just want to quick, you know, yeah. She's incredible. Sorry. But she already, like, named everyone. So I, I'm, I'm probably messing it up for her. But let's read John chapter 11, verse 21 through 27. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In the resurrection on the last day. Underline or circle, whatever you want to do, in and on. Because Jesus says back to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into this world. Martha's conversation is with Jesus starts with starts with doubt but ends in, in in continued faith. I think the reason for that is because Jesus reveals another part of him. Jesus states his last I am statement in the book of John saying, "I am the resurrection and the life." While Martha shows faith knowing that Lazarus will will be uh, raised to life in the very last day, Jesus is actually saying that no Martha, the resurrection is not an event, it's a person. That resurrection is a person, not an event. And in fact, that resurrection is standing in front of you right now. So Martha, what does that mean for you? That means that if someone's dead but they believe, they're not actually dead. If someone believes and they're still alive, they're never going to die. That eternity with God starts at the moment of belief. That right now, if you are in this room and you have professed your faith and you have made Jesus your Lord and Savior, what that means for you is that you are now living in your future right now. You are living in eternity right now in this temporary world here on planet Earth. 
And that Jesus, what, is, what Jesus is trying to reveal to her is that truth, that yes, your pain, yes, your suffering is real. I'm not trying to diminish that, Martha. What I'm trying to get you to see is that I am the resurrection, and I am here standing right in front of you. And because of that, it should reshape your present situation because Jesus is saying that even though he's dead, find joy in that he is, is, is alive. Even though you're alive and you're suffering, find joy that you are living in eternity. Let your eternity change your perspective on your current situation. And in this, he challenges her to believe, not to debate. He introduces this crazy statement. He doesn't try to like, all right, Martha, now come back at me. What do you got to, to you know, challenge me on? He challenges her to belief. He says, do you believe this? Showing us that all we have to do to live in eternity right now is believe? Martha ends this conversation with great faith. And I think the reason it, we're about to read verse 28 through 33 response to, to Mary she runs to her sister. I think she's excited here. Like, Jesus just revealed this awesome thing to us. Like, you got to hear this. Read verse 28, 33. This is going to get tiring. Martha is done. Mary's back up, all right? Verse 28 through 33. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village. They're still not at the tomb. It's still way over there on the right corner side of the final graph. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Custom was they would have gone with her and comforted her and wept with her. Wept with her. Now when Mary came to Jesus, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. We get to Mary's statement, and unlike Martha, where she kind of backs it up with a faith-filled statement, Mary here is this uncontrolled, emotional, doubt and pain-filled statement where she is just in so much intense pain that all she knows what to do is fall at his feet and cry. And Jesus' response here is not the same. I think he does, he, I know he doesn't respond in words immediately, but what it actually shows, what John shows, are actually Jesus' emotions first to this type of response. Read in verse 33. Jesus, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Underline those two emotions for me. I'm having you guys underline a lot today, but underline those two emotions for me because those emotions are not what we initially think they mean. Deeply moved is never used in compassion, but more in rebuke and warning. And greatly troubled is not a positive emotion, but it's one that means shaken, upset, or even disturbed. Why is Jesus feeling these strong emotions? Why is he feeling such complex emotions when he just responded to Martha in a completely different way? Some people here, and, and as you read some, some, some theologians, they say that he's angry at death for taking the life of Lazarus. And while I think that's true, I don't think that's the main thing because we see that Jesus understands in his sovereignty, right? We believe Jesus is both fully God and fully man, that Jesus in his sovereignty knows that this illness and this death does not actually lead to death but to the revealing of the Father. So I don't think that he's mad or angry at death. I think what it is right here is that he is feeling such complex emotions because he has a large number of people doubting his love for Lazarus and showing a lack of faith in his power over this situation. Jesus, if you really loved him, you would have come right away when you heard he was sick. Jesus, if you were really all-powerful, Jesus, it's four days. There's nothing you can do either. 
It's done. His spirit's gone. He's dead, dead. Jesus here, in his sovereignty, I think, is frustrated that they can't see his love that he has for Lazarus, but also that they're lacking faith in the power that he has over this situation. But I also think that his fully man side is empathizing with the people's pain. I'm a co-crier, all right? If someone is crying in a situation, I will cry. Unless, So, for instance, let's give two examples. One, my wife Cassie yesterday, we were watching The Secret Life of Pets 2, right? Five minutes in. It's not a sad movie, especially not the first five minutes. Five minutes in, I hear, <laughs> I turn around, and Cassie is crying in the first five minutes of Secret Life of Pets. Like, tears just streaming down her face. And I go, Cassie. Did I, do like, did I do something wrong? Did I not pick up on a sign or something? And it was just, so that's not a co-crier moment for me because I have no idea what she's even cry, crying at. Another example, though, my mom's dad has just passed away. Not recently, like four years ago, just passed away. And she comes into the driveway when, when I had just found out the news. Everyone had just found out the news. She comes in the driveway from work. I'm out there. I don't remember what, remember what I was doing, but all I remember is seeing her. She gets out of the car, she's weeping, just crying. I go to her, I give her a hug, and I instantly just start crying. I was sad that my grandpa was dead, but I was more sad, I was feeling more pain through my mom's pain that her father had died. I'm a co-crier, right? That Jesus here is empathizing so much with these people, but also his sovereignty is also taking apart, and he's feeling such complex emotions that he just initially, he eventually, just what? The easiest verse to memorize the entire Bible, 35, Jesus wept. Isn't that what death does to us? It brings about such complex emotions that in the end we really only know what, the only thing we know what to do in the end is just start crying. It brings us to such complex emotions that we just start weeping. That's what Jesus is doing here. There are people questioning his love for a friend whom he loved dearly. And there's people here lacking faith in the power that he has, but also he's seeing this intense pain in these people. Verse 37 again, they question openly his character saying, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind also have saved this man from dying? Once again, they're just over here testing Jesus, all right? And what we see in verse 38 is, I think, the moment right before the climax of any story. Verse 30 is one of my favorite verses in the scripture. It gives me goosebumps every single time I read it because this, for me, is just epic. It's like the underdog football team is about to score on the five-yard line as the time runs out. The bad guy, does it, he looks like it's about the bad guy's about to win in the movie, but the good guy's coming behind him about to just like punch him in the back right, and just take him down. Like we're, This should get us really hype, right? Verse 38, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. Like Inception music right there, right? Then Jesus, deeply moved, deeply disturbed again at all of this, comes to the tomb. Now we are at the tomb, and now we have, oh no, glory of God, stay. We have everyone, we have Mary, Martha, actually, we'll change out, we'll put sad Jesus. Okay, we have Mary, Martha, the disciples, uh, save you for later, uh, sad Mary, uh, disciples, and the Jews, all right there, all at the tomb, all about to witness this revealing of God and the revealing of Jesus through this situation. Let's read John chapter 11, verse 39 through 44. Jesus said, 
Take away the stone. Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. It's done, Jesus. What do you think people are thinking this moment? He loves Lazarus. He wants one last look. He wants to say goodbye one last time to his friend. But Martha's like, Jesus, there's a stone we got to roll away. Um, that's kind of heavy. There's going to be a really bad smell. And also, it's, he's been dead for four days. Nothing we can do here. He's dead, dead. But Jesus responds, did I not tell you? Martha, if you believed, you would see the glory of God. Martha, just have some belief. You're about to see something incredible take place here. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice. He literally yelled, I'm not going to yell because the sound people will hate me. Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. The clothes of death is walking out. Y'all, we got a mummy coming out of the tomb. People are looking at it going, what in the world is happening right now? Jesus, there are so many little things happening right here. The, the, the ones to know, I think, that Jesus makes three authoritative statements here that parallel, that John, the author, is trying to parallel with Genesis and the creation, that the very words of Jesus can bring about new life. Just like God, in the triune form, back in Genesis 1, was able to bring about creation through his words. Paralleling that, the second the second is that his prayer to the Father is completely intentional. We're supposed to pray in private sometimes. A lot of people, if, if someone in front of us started praying like this, we would probably get annoyed with them, right? Like, oh my gosh, here he goes. I know I'm one with the Father. I know everything. But it's Jesus, right? It's completely intentional. Once again, he's reminding them, hey, I am one with the Father. The Father's will is my will. The Father's heart is my heart. What's about to take place here through my Father is also through me. And the third thing is that this resurrect, this full resurrection of Lazarus is way more than a physical one. It symbolizes the spiritual one that each of us go through. When we are dead in our sins, Jesus reaches down into the grave, breathes life into us, and pulls us out so that we can walk in eternity, the moment of belief with Jesus, and in light of the victory that Jesus has on the cross. Jesus does exactly what he says he's going to do in verse 4. He brings glory to God, and he reveals more of himself through this situation. We actually see here, and this is the beauty, this is why I even mentioned the Exodus 33:18 uh, question that Moses asked, that Jesus reveals here that he is God as he is, walking among us, and yet people can look on him and not die, but when Jesus is revealed to us, as he is, it causes us and leads us to belief. Eternal life, true life, not death in the holiness, but life through the holiness. Are you seeing a theme in all of this? God is going to get the glory no matter the circumstance of life. God is go God will be revealed through that situation no matter what. God is going to get the glory because God is for God. When we hear that, I think we all kind of cringe a little bit. God is for God. Wait, isn't he for me? Just hang with me. I want to read Romans eleven thirty six. 
It's a short one. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. For from him and through him and to him are all things. What it means that God is for God, I do think that this is a very complex idea that we struggle to wrap our minds, our minds around because we don't like people who are like this. We don't like a Nathan who is for Nathan, right? That guy annoys us. That guy disturbs us to our core, deeply moves us, right? We don't like people who are for themselves, but God in his perfected state can do this because he is deserving of all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. He's the one being in the entire universe that is deserving of all of that. And the other thing is that God being for God, it means that he's actually for us. God being for God means he's actually for us. Because what he's offering himself is the only thing that can satisfy our deepest longings. What he's offering himself is his love to us so that it will point us back to him. His love for us, as Piper writes, I'm about to quote Piper like five times, so everyone just hold your horses because they get, they get really powerful, right? But Piper, his first quote, he says, The love of God means doing whatever is best for us. And what that means in light of God being for God means that it's going to reveal him in the circumstances of our life. That God being for God, his love wants for what's best for us. And what's best for us is to place God as our supreme satisfaction, as our supreme joy, as Piper writes, as our supreme love, as our supreme life. That's what love is. Pointing us, even if we can't see how he's pointing us right now, to the love of God, to the character and nature of God, who God is and what he is. What we start to see is that this story of this narrative in John chapter 11 is not, the main thing is not Lazarus being raised from the dead. Oh my gosh, I just realized Lazarus still has his mummy clothes on. Sorry. Woo, close. What we see here is Lazarus, this story is not about Lazarus being raised from the dead, it's about the glory of God. Jesus here does not raise Lazarus because he loves Lazarus, but because he wants people to witness the glory of God in action here so that this revealing, this true revealing of Jesus will cause people here to believe. And that in in light of all of this, we start to see that scripture really is not about us. It's not a story of us. It's about God, the revealing of him, the teaching of his character and nature so that we would believe and in light place him as our ultimate satisfaction, our ultimate source of life, peace, joy, love. And as Christians, we start to view the world once we believe in Jesus in, in, in light of eternity, in light of living in eternity, in light of all of this. As Christians, we start to live our life out in eternity. And we start to have this understanding. Colossians 3, 1 through 4, I think, eloquently puts it way better than I ever could. When it says, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That God is covering you right now in his holiness, in his power. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So I think in light of living in eternity, and in light of understanding that this is all about the revealing of the Father, I come to this question of how can we glorify God in the midst of our life? How can we 
humans glorify God in the circumstances of our life. To show this, I'm going to have my wonderful, beautiful wife come up. She hates me for this, so I'm hoping that this is wonderful, but you got it. I love you. Thank you. You're amazing. And what I want to show here is I want you all to imagine that Cassie is you, although none of you out there are as beautiful as her, so just get over it. None of you is as beautiful as her, but she is representing all of you out here. And she's going to go over here. Yeah, right here. Perfect. Thank you. Wonderful. Excellent. Beautiful. Wow, wow, wow. She hates me so much right now. I'm totally sleeping on the couch tonight. All right, so she is standing right here. She represents all of us. And what I want to do is I want to show you two different type of perspectives that we can have on the world, whether if we are basing and living in eternity right now in light of the victory that Jesus has on the cross, or if we are living what I call a dead man's perspective. So I'm going to give Cassie, I'm going to give her drunk goggles. Yes, I just said drunk in church and not in the spirit, but in spirits. So, I'm going to give her these drunk goggles, all right? And what I want you to imagine is that this is a dead man's lens, someone that Christ has not saved, someone that, that has not accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Savior, someone that is walking on this life, trying to find their satisfaction in the things of this world, trying to find their purpose. Also, look how funny, I'm not, no, the eyes look, anyways, sorry. Trying to find purpose in the things of this world, trying to find life and joy and content in the things of this world. And what I'm going to have her do is I'm going to have her walk from there to me, heel to toe. But wait, before you do, we all know life is not as easy as a straight path, correct? Right? Uh, If it is, I want to talk to you because I want to know what you are doing right now, that you don't have any obstacles in your way or anything like that. So if you've been wondering what these cones are for, my wife's about to do a cone drill with drunk goggles on The dead man's perspective. But I want us to imagine this. Different obstacles come into each of our lives. So these are not all happening to one person, but maybe they have. Maybe things in your life, obstacles, circumstances come into your life, like losing a job. You had your dream job, but you lost it. Maybe certain things come into your life. (laughs) Sorry, your eyes. (laughs) Things come into your eyes, like losing a, a, a relationship or a loved one, whether it's through a breakup, you thought he or she was the one, but now you're back to dating Jesus. Maybe you lose a loved one through death, through an untimely death, and that becomes another obstacle, another circumstance that you have to navigate through in life. Or maybe you have been a victim of abuse in some way, shape, or form of, of emotional abuse, of physical abuse, of sexual abuse, and that creates another circumstance in your life that you have to navigate around. Okay, now, walk. So, she's coming here. Oh, you're in heels too. This is not good. She comes here. Just walk past it. You're not walking really in the line, but that's okay. So she comes. Stop there. She loses her job. Her joy was found in her job. This was her dream job. It's everything that she had dreamed of and wanted since she was a little girl or a little boy, whoever's out there. It was your dream job. You found all of your joy in that. But now an obstacle comes that you lose your job. And therefore, because you were finding your satisfaction in your job, you now lose your joy. Or maybe she stumbles her way through trying to navigate through these circumstances of life. Watch out for the thing. And, she, and someone out there has lost a loved one. Some of you have gone through divorce. Some of you have gone through really terrible relationships. I know it's hard to concentrate on the serious things that I'm talking about. Maybe this was not the best idea. We're going through it anyways. Stop right there. And they lose 
a loved one and it becomes another obstacle because their source of love, the place that they found their love was all found in that person, that they were looking for that satisfaction of that love right here on earth in that person. But now that they're gone, they have now lost their source of love. And then she comes to this final cone. And someone out there has been a victim of abuse in some way, shape, or form. And if you go through a certain situation, I'll take your hand. That's an illustration of itself. That'll preach. You just stand right here. But when you go through something like that, it, it, it takes a part of your dignity. It, it makes you feel like you're, you're full of shame. It almost makes you lose a piece of your life. And what I'm trying to tell you right now is with this dead man's perspective on, if you're looking... If the, if the lens that you look at the world is not the lens of Christ, is not the eyes of, of Christ, if you're not living in light of eternity and the truth that that brings right now, then it becomes almost impossible to navigate the circumstances of your life because there is where all of your life is found. And when those things are taken away, it hurts tenfold more. But what I want come back this way, please, Miss Cassie. This one's easy. But this is the beauty that Colossians tells us. What we see here in finding our satisfaction in Jesus is that you get to put on a lens. I call it the resurrection lens. Remember, the resurrection is a person, not an event. You put on this lens, and you come, and you lose your job. And yes, that is still a terrible situation if it was your dream job. It's not good, right? But you can navigate it in light of Jesus and the victory that he has on the cross because your joy was not found in that job, but it's found in Jesus. I'm not trying to diminish the pain that you went through here. I'm just trying to point you to the fact that eternity makes that pain have a purpose because of God's perfect plan. You come here, you lose a loved one. I'm not trying to diminish that pain in any way, shape, or form. It is a terrible thing to go through a terrible breakup or to go through a divorce or to, or to lose someone that you love. But even though that person was a source of love, it wasn't the source of love. So you're not left sitting empty, feeling unloved and unworthy because, once again, there's purpose in that pain. I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to diminish what you're going through, but there's purpose in that pain because of God's perfect plan that He has laid out for your life. You come and, and you have been a victim of abuse in some way, shape, or form. You feel like, like you lose a sense of, of dignity. Like you feel like you're not worthy to be loved by anyone anymore. You can't trust anyone anymore because of all this. But, if your soul satisfaction and, and the way that your life is going, good or bad, is found in how your current life is going, and that's not what we're supposed to be doing, but with this resurrection perspective, it means that you are looking at the cross fixed solely on it, and you are living life in eternity. That means that you, yes, that's a terrible thing to happen. Yes, that's a horrific thing to happen. But Jesus is your source of life. Jesus is the one who gives you dignity. Jesus makes you worthy. Jesus, as Colossians says, covers you in his worthiness, dignity, holiness, and everything. Thank you, Cassie. You can go and have a seat. Thank you. And notice, when, when she put on those lenses, when you believe in Christ, it doesn't make those obstacles go away. Those obstacles are still there in life. What it does, though, is it allows you to navigate the circumstances of your life in light of Jesus and the victory that he has on the cross. And this is what I want to end with. As Ben comes out and, and Hannah comes out, and, and as we are about to take communion here, We see that having this lens on doesn't make anything less crappy. doesn't make it hurt a lot of times any less when you're in the moment of intense pain, suffering, or grief. 
what I'm saying here is that when we look with the resurrection lens, when we are looking at our situations through the eyes of Jesus, we see that our pain has purpose and that God is constantly working in the small details of our life to bring restoration and redemption. You don't understand right now how God is going to redeem the shame that you feel. That's okay. Put your satisfaction in him. I don't understand right now how he's going to restore my brokenness that I feel so intensely. That's okay. What, but, but focus on Jesus. Focus in the fact that he is working in the details of your life to bring about restoration. I don't know how he's going to show himself in this awful situation. But until you can look back, until you can see how God was working in your life, until you can look back and say, I need that, Mike. Not that. <laughs> Sorry. Can I keep this here? Until you can say, I apologize, Mike. That's not what God says to us. I need that, Mike. <laughs> until I can look back and say, that's what you were trying to show me in that situation I will choose to be satisfied in Christ and who he says for my life. I will trust and know that he is working in the details of my life to bring all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise back to him. And because of that, because God is for God, I know that he is working for me to bring all of everything in my life back to him and to see how he was working in it. Mike, you can take this now. I apologize. Or I can take this now. I'll just take it. He has a guitar in his hands. So as we take communion today, remember we have an extended time of worship, so please don't leave after communion. But as we take communion today, we remember the greatest revealing of God as he is on the cross. As we take the the wine, it's not wine. It's not wine. Uh, It's not wine. Uh, We remember the blood that was shed for us. On the cross. As we take the bread, we remember his body brutally broken for us. As as we take communion, we're reminded that God was working in one of the seemingly most hopeless situations that everyone's savior was being hung on a cross. And that person who was supposed to save me from everything is now there being brought to shame, being brought to, to death even. That this person that everyone was following in this moment was then on a cross in front of everyone. And that in that moment, people couldn't see it, but God was working in that situation. God was working to restore that situation. God was working to redeem the shame that Jesus felt. God was working to reveal himself through that situation. We remember because as we take communion, we remember that because of that act on the cross, We see God as he is in Jesus. As Paul writes, we receive grace upon grace and we become manifestations of his glory. How can I bring glory to God in the circumstances of my life? Piper writes, and this is what I end with. Piper writes, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. That the more we are satisfied in him, the more we know him, the more we intimately have a relationship and a knowing of him, the more he will be revealed in us and through us. So come, remember, and bring praise.
to the one who's deserving.